0: glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. All right, Genesis chapter 3. So we're just going to read. Uh, I want to read the account of the temptation of Eden in the garden, of uh, Eve in the garden, and then I want to go forward and say some more things about what I believe John is refuting. And I believe as we go through the book, you'll see that's exactly what was going on. So, For God doth know. Now what did he say there? God doth know. God has knowledge that he didn't share with you. God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now you know what happened here. Satan, of course, in this form of the serpent, comes along and says, God told you not to eat of that tree right there. He sowed seeds of dissatisfaction in their heart, of discontentment, and then he said, This will satisfy you. What God has provided is not enough. God's rules are withholding from you knowledge that he has, and he does the same thing today. So I didn't have you turn here initially, but I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 as well. As we get into the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read the first couple of verses, and we'll move on down uh, to um, verse thirteen. So second Corinthians eleven verse one says Would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. May I just pause and say this is our theme as we come into twenty twenty one. We are espoused to one, our loyalty, our devotion, our heart is to be loyal to one, and that's Jesus Christ. Verse 3, But I fear, lest that by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, and we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might Uh, Well, bear with him. He said, if somebody else came preaching a false Christ or false gospel, you might put up with him. You might bear with him. And it was concerning to Paul that they were not more solidified in their stance of separation over a false Christ or a false false gospel or a false spirit. And I've moved down to verse 13. Paul says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, and no marvel." For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. When he says Satan is transformed into an angel uh, of light, what he's saying is, is that he presents himself as someone who's going to give you a greater knowledge. Meaning you've got a Bible, you've got the truth revealed from God, Christ Jesus came into the world as the living word. We have the written word. God has revealed to man through Jesus Christ, through the scripture, what we need to know. God is revealed through the conscience and through creation. Yet, yet, Satan says, ah, ah, but there's a knowledge that God has concealed from you. How many have ever heard of the Gnostic Gospels? I was doing just a little bit of research today. The Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel according to Thomas is supposedly one of these. And what it does is basically say all that is in the canon of Scripture is a false narrative and that only a few elite people truly knew the true Christ. If you study anything today that calls itself Christian but is actually cultic, they all claim to have some unique knowledge not in the Bible. True? It's what Mormonism does. It's what the Jehovah's Witnesses do. It's what all of them, even Muhammad, supposedly got a revelation about who Jesus really is. Almost, uh, as far as I know, every false religion today addresses Jesus Christ. You can't ignore him. But there supposedly is a knowledge beyond what the scripture says. May I say in a practical sense, there are things in your conscience God put in us. I mean, Let us understand what natural law is. And here's kind of what natural law is. I'm a male and I know that it, was, it is perverse to be attracted to a male in the physical sense. I don't have to have that written down. It is written down. that It's it's an abomination. But that is a natural law that God put in us. Satan says, but you don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're missing. Uh, It's amazing uh, some of the things written by Gnostics and these who say they had hidden knowledge. We're not going to study Gnosticism, but I want us to understand that by the time the first century came to a close, Gnosticism was on the rise saying we have a superior knowledge that's been revealed to us through learning through education, through through these things. And there is an elite class of people who've learned something that is hidden from the rest of the world. All the rest of the world is in darkness, but we have light. And you cannot attain to that light. Only a few of us can. That was at least the the, the the majority view. And even today, even today, what will happen is there's a host of people that say, no, you can't trust that Bible. There are things that aren't in there that the rest of the world, God has withheld. I've met people in this county, many people that hold some view that is consistent with what Gnosticism would have taught, I believe, in this period in which we're living. The evolutionism of our day, and I've said it recently, I believe Gnosticism is... Still at work today, if you want to call it that. Today it's secular humanism. But if you would, the the premise of secular humanism is what's revealed in the Bible is archaic and out of date. We, through science, have discovered the real truth. The real truth is we were not created. We evolved or receded on planet Earth by aliens. But what the Bible says, that is, that's been proven false. That's outdated. You need to get up to speed, man, and realize that there is a knowledge that's superior to what God has revealed. That's why John immediately is going to address the subject of of, of light. God is light, and in him dwelleth no darkness at all. God is not a deceiver. God's not trying to fool anybody. God has told us the truth. The problem is our hearts are darkened by sin so that we see a truth teller as a liar and a liar as someone who tells the truth. And it's only Christ that can make the difference. And so I wanted to kind of give us that setting as we come into First John because I, as you read through, I believe it becomes quickly evident that's what these folks are dealing with. They are dealing with people who said, we have had an experience, we have had education that makes us superior to you and you're inferior to us, it's amazing to me, you read Apostle Paul's preaching, you read John's preaching, James's preaching, not a one of them believed they were superior because they had actually physically been with Christ. John referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, not the disciple who loved Jesus from the very sense that I'm not worthy, but he loved me anyway, and he is the one that sat next to him. He was in the inner circle, but you never hear an air of superiority with the apostles. Here they had the experience. They raised people from the dead, They had special graces, and John will explain immediately in 1 John that those experiences were not about making them elite, but about God being able to use them to verify the truth and bring others into fellowship with God and, of course, with His Son, Jesus Christ. So having said all of that, let me give you some facts about 1 John before we dive in and read the verses. We're just going to look at the first four verses tonight. We'll read all ten in just a moment after I give you some interesting uh, statistics from the book. Uh, That give us some understanding of John's theme. So, uh, the word love, some form of the word love, is used 46 times in five chapters. 46 times in 26 verses throughout the five chapters of John is the concept of love mentioned. That is, that obviously is a theme of the book. Uh, Number two, the word true, or some, excuse me, some form of the word know or knowledge. So, knowing. So this is why we believe he's addressing. This, this concept of Gnosticism, he deals with what the Christian knows to be true. 38 times in 31 verses, John references some form of the word know. Uh, some form of the word true is used 16 times in 12 verses. All these in the five chapters of 1 John. And so then again, um, in 1 John 2, 26 and 27, he puts forward. Throughout the book, he'll say, these things write we unto you. But he says this, and I think it's a it's a key verse or key verses for the understanding of the entire book. First John two twenty six and twenty seven, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you, but the anointing which ye have received of him, being of Jesus Christ, abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things. Now, some people just like to quote the first part of that verse, you need not that any man teach you. Well, if that's what John was saying, then he was contradicting his own teaching. He said, you need not any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you. Meaning, you don't need somebody teaching you anything different than what the Spirit of God is teaching you through the Scripture. The way we would say it today is, if what some man's teaching you is not consistent with Bible, you don't need it. If somebody today has a new doctrine, dismiss them. If it was not a doctrine revealed in the Bible, it's a lie. So he says, I've discovered the secrets of marriage. No, they haven't. If they didn't read their Bible... I've discovered the secret of child training. No, not if it's not from the Bible. I've discovered the secret of true salvation. It's not a secret. It's known. God's Word and God's mind is not a secret. We have the mind of Christ. That's what, that's what John is saying. You don't need some elite teachers coming along teaching you something that the Holy Spirit is not teaching you. If they're going to teach, they need to say the same thing that the anointing you have within you is teaching you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things and is truth, And is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Satan wants us to depart from the faith. He wants us to depart from the doctrine of Jesus Christ, and if not to depart, to live in doubt of. He is a great deceiver, and if he can't steal your salvation, he certainly wants to steal your joy and your fruitfulness and rob you of fellowship with God. I believe there's a lot of people today who are truly saved but have been robbed of fellowship with God by not being satisfied with the truth that God has already revealed or not being grounded in it, one of the two. So having said all that, just some key thoughts about this. Let me give you a couple of definitions of Gnosticism. Um, Webster's Dictionary defines it this way. A philosophy prevalent uh, in the days... Excuse me, this is the Way of Life Encyclopedia. A philosophy prevalent in the days of the apostles according to... Gnostic teaching, the physical creation was uh, made by God through a progression of angels. The Gnostics believed that God is pure, but that the creation, the physical things of the world, are impure, since the progression of angels was thought to become less pure as they moved from God. Gnostics had two different opinions about how men could become pure. One group tried to deny and mistreat their bodies through fasting, sleeping, uh, ...flagellations, etc. Christians are warned, of course, against that in Colossians 2:18 through 23 The other group believed that since their bodies were evil... ...it didn't matter how they lived as long as their thoughts were high. These Gnostics lived in sensual pleasure and debauchery. The idea is rebuked in Colossians chapter 3. Gnostic means knowledge and Gnosticism promoted a sort of secret society of the intellectual. Only a certain special group were considered advanced enough... To be accepted. Can you see how Gnosticism and Catholicism, how one led to the other? How, how you have a clergy and laity where the clergy have a unique access to God because of their learning and their education and because of, of their ability to read the scriptures or ignore the scriptures. And the laity just had to, you know, be, believe what they were told. Gnosticism helped create Catholicism. And it became you know, part of what I believe is is probably the, the doctrine and the deeds of Balaam and the doctrine and deeds of the Nicolaitans that you find in the book of Revelation. Anyway, you find that even today among evangelicalism. I've said it before. The whole premise of you can't trust your King James Bible has opened up. Back there somewhere in history is hidden the truth of God. Now, we have something pretty close in our translations. I mean, it's, it's the inerrant and Word of God so far as it's translated correctly. That's what the Mormons say, and that's what most evangelical-claiming people believe. They won't say it, but that's what they believe. Now, when the Mormons say that, what is it? why do Mormons, uh, LDS, say that the Bible is infallible so far as it is translated correctly? Because that leaves it open to some errors where they say it's translated incorrectly, and then we get to slip in our superior knowledge. We know the Bible says this, but a better translation would be, are you with me? These are not minor issues. It is the way Satan deceives Christians in our day. is by saying, well, we can't completely trust our Bible, so you've got to have somebody who's smart enough to dig back into the annals of history and find out what God really said. Christian, hear me tonight. If you're born again and you have a King James Bible, you have what you need from God. Period. You have the Holy Spirit in your heart. You have Jesus Christ Himself as your teacher. He gave you His church to assist you in living for God. You do not need some superior, elite, spiritual person telling you what God really said when you already know what He said. I believe John wrote 1 John with the same spirit I'm preaching to you from tonight. God's people were being maligned; they were being put aside by people that were causing them to doubt whether or not they were even saved in the first place because they did not share the knowledge that others supposedly had. I believe this, even to our day, there are those who delight in education and there are those who delight in experience. The charismatics are big on experience. I know the Bible says, but I sure know what happened at church last night. I know women aren't supposed to preach. That's in the Bible. But this woman got filled with the Spirit. And if you're filled with the Spirit, you got to preach. Right? I know the Bible says don't speak in tongues unless there's an interpreter. But my goodness, when the Spirit is on you and you've got a tongue to speak, you have to speak it, don't you? That's the charismatic experience. I know what I felt. I know what I experienced. Over here, you got the Calvinist. Well... We've studied and we've studied and we've studied and we have so much knowledge about theology that we can tell you you know all about God and the elect and all this stuff and they delight in education. And if you want to have somebody that can debate you into a corner up a wall and over the other side, meet a Calvinist and challenge what they believe. If they preach the gospel as hard as they preach Calvinism they'd turn the world upside down. But their prideful contention gets in the way. May God deliver us from both. Knowledge puffeth up. But charity edifies. I believe God is not interested really in the education. I'm not saying we're supposed to be stupid. But it's not education that sets you apart unto God. And it's not experience that sets you apart unto God. It is Christ himself that sets you apart unto God. And that's what John's going to emphasize in 1 John. And so then, uh, Gnosticism. The Gnostic is defined in Webster's Dictionary in the 1911 edition in this way. Uh, good at knowing. Someone that's good at knowing. Now you think about that. Have you ever met a know-it-all? Help me now. What does a know-it-all think? And they're better than who? Everybody. How many have ever met a know-it-all that said, I'm a know-it-all? No, because they know that's not right. So they pretend that they're not a know-it-all, though they are a know-it-all, and they treat everybody else like dirt. Because you don't know as much as I know, then you must be inferior. No? Yeah, but that's, that's, that was... So, the Gnostic in its general form is just someone that's good at knowing. Sagatius as a man that claims to have a deeper wisdom. One of the so-called philosophers in the first ages of Christianity who claimed a true philosophical, they claimed a true philosophical interpretation of the Christian religion. Their system combined Oriental theology and Greek philosophy with the doctrines of Christianity. Don't miss that. Combined Oriental theology thinking about God, with Greek philosophy and Christian religion, and they, they combined all of that to come up with Gnosticism. They held that all natures, intelligible, intellectual, and material, are derived from the deity by successive emanations, which they called eons. Strange religion. In the first and second century, it became a powerful religion, as I understand. It's still alive and well today because the father of it is still... Alive today. It's branded secular humanism. It's branded uh, multiculturalism. It's, it's branded pluralism. But it's nothing but the same old lie that Satan gave in the garden. That what God revealed is not enough. There's a deeper knowledge that if you just believe the Bible, you're a simpleton and you're deceived. Do you realize that today? If you believe creation, those who don't say you are what? Deceived. They're... Now, we don't know for sure how we got here, but we know that what God said is not true. And so then, we must be aware that though John was dealing with Gnosticism in the first century, it was sure seen that way, we're still dealing with it today. And that's why this book is so alive and helpful to us. Now, let's consider a few points about these first few verses. And we'll read all ten. We're going to focus on four verses tonight to get us started. And uh, uh, And then, God willing, over the next number of weeks, we'll be staying in the book of 1 John. 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and... The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. When I read First John 1, and I couple that with First John chapter 2, verse 26, it tells me somebody was telling the people here that they didn't sin. I don't think so much the believers that John was writing to believe they had sinned. What John is doing is so there's some people trying to seduce you and they're trying to tell you some things that aren't true. They're walking in darkness, not acknowledging the truth that they're sinners, not acknowledging the truth of Christ. And you need to understand what they're telling you is not right. So he's going to immediately start exposing some things that aren't true. But in the first four verses tonight, he's really just going to introduce why he's writing to them and lay some things down. It's very interesting to me. There are those who would say, well, the deity of Christ got settled at the council of... It didn't get settled at any council. It was settled in the council of heaven before he ever came to earth. And it didn't take any time at all for the disciples. By the time Jesus resurrected from the dead, the disciples all knew that he was God in the flesh. Uh, Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, that was when John wrote First John, there was no question in his mind or in the mind of any true believer who Jesus was. We begin tonight, I'm going to give you three points about tonight in the first four verses, John's premise. Now premise is is something that is already, is is an accepted and established truth and you build an argument based upon that. So John's going to open the premise of his book he starts off with in verses 1 and 2. He's going to really simply repeat some things that are in in his gospel account in John 1 and that is there's some fundamental truth here that we know to be true and it wasn't up for debate and it wasn't up for question when he says this, that which was from the beginning. You think back to John one: 1 In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Right here in John, uh, 1 John 1, one, it's the same thing. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the... And what's the next three words? Word of life. And you'll notice word is capitalized. What he is referring to again is that Jesus Christ first John one one is the same thing as John 1 one that which was from the beginning in the beginning was the word meaning Christ did not begin with the virgin birth he always has been he was in the beginning he was there when we began he 's the creator so his premise is concerning christ 's position as our creator he just he assumes that as a fact that would be. Because, as I understand, Gnostics would deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And I'll be honest with you, there are many today, they deny it outright or they deny it uh, uh, on the sideline by insinuating that he is a mere man like us. But his premise is, of course, Christ's position is from the beginning. He is the firstborn of the creation of God, as it says in uh, the first begotten of the creation of God, uh, in Colossians chapter 1. And we'll read a few of those verses in a moment. But he's just... He is not even establishing again. The assumption is we know Christ is from the beginning. He is the Creator. Number two, he deals, of course, Christ's person. He's called the Word of Life. This deals with his position as the second person of the Godhead. He is God the Son, the Word of Life. He's referred to by John as the Word on numerous occasions. In 1 John 5, he'll refer to him as that again. In the beginning, uh, excuse me, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the... Word and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And so the Word is another... Because Jesus is God's message to mankind. The living Christ is, is is the heart of God. Jesus Christ is the communication of the heart of God to man. His coming communicates God's love for man. His living communicates God's righteousness and holiness to man. His death communicates all of the above. God's justice, God's equity, God's love, God's mercy... All of that is communicated in the person of Jesus Christ. I believe this. I believe the Bible is the written uh, photograph of who Jesus Christ is. See, I want a clear image of Jesus. Don't look for some stupid picture on the wall. Read the Bible. It is the written record of the living word. And so then, Christ is God's communicate. You want to know something about God, you must know it through the person of Jesus Christ. There's only one way to access knowledge of God. It's through Christ. It's not through education. It's not through philosophy. It's not through those things. I believe this. I, I, I know of people today as Christians, they get sucked into the secular world. They begin to study uh, old old um, uh, classics, of, of, of year, philosophical classics. You be careful doing that. Be careful reading uh, Plato or Aristotle or some of these godless men. They were brilliant, but lost. They were brilliant, but they didn't know God. And if you're not careful, you'll get in and you'll just become enamored with their education and their intelligence and step further from God, not nearer, because instead of them giving you light, they cause doubt. May I, may I say this? Anything that you are letting into your life that causes you to question the validity of God's word and of God's Son, put it away. I don't care if it's in the name of Christ or in the name of Christianity. If it puts a question mark on God's word, it's not of God. That is of Satan. <laughs> and by the way, sometimes those things happen and they're subtle. We listen to something that we think will edify us and we begin to doubt and wonder. Man, well, I believe true. I remember one of the first times I <laughs> I remember hearing a man, very intelligent man on the radio, and he, he had the same ideology. He talked about the Bible. He said, you know, there's a lot of... There's a lot of things, written records, that are missing from Scripture. And he would have claimed to be a Christian type of a man. Wasn't. Very clearly wasn't. And by the time I got done listening to that interview with that very intelligent man, my mind was in knots. Because he was so intelligent and he so insinuated that what's in the Bible, that someone had craftily left things out of the Bible to the end that people that simply believe it and believe that salvation the way we do are deceived that we are missing something. Oh, that crafty deceiver that he was. God helped me get over him, and I'm glad for it. I only heard a short interview, but he was very skillful in his deception. You know what John's saying? Here's the premise. Christ is from the beginning. Christ is the living word, the word of life. And then his, he speaks of Christ's position, Christ's person, and Christ's presentation. What he's saying is, in John, 1 John 1.1, is he came in the flesh. Now, if I said, Colton came to us in the flesh... May seventeen of two thousand four would that shock anybody no you don 't really say it that way. He was born when you say that God was or that, that he came in the flesh, so great is the mystery of godliness God was manifest in the flesh what it's what it's saying to us is before Jesus was flesh he was he said in john eight fifty eight before Abraham was I am, and they took up stones to stone him and so john 's reminding us that Jesus was not a man that was just good. It's a truth we know, very doctrinal message, but listen, doctrine is the foundation of everything else. It is vital that we have our doctrine right, and especially the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And so he says, that which was from the beginning, that's Christ His Creator, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. What John is saying is, God, the living word, the eternal life came to us in the form of a human that we heard with our ears, not everybody, John and the apostles, those that were eyewitnesses of him, we heard him with our ears, we saw him with our eyes, we looked upon him, we even handled him, we touched him, he said, put your fingers in my hands to Thomas after his resurrection. He said, we actually laid hands on this person, he's literal, and he was in a physical bodily form. Now, let me ask you, how many of us have had that experience? How many Christians, true born-again believers, have had that experience of actually hearing Jesus speak with our physical ears, seeing him with our physical eyes, especially following the resurrection, touching him with the physical hands, being in his very presence? Now, if you did, if you actually did, people today that say they have had visions of the Christ, what do they typically do? How do we find out about that? They write books, and they do interviews on TV so that they can show they have a knowledge that the rest of us don't. Paul said he was caught up to the third heaven, and he said, but there are things there that I'm not allowed to utter. He said it wouldn't be appropriate. God even gave Paul a thorn in the flesh, lest he be, what? Exalted above measure. I'll be honest with you. Something that has plagued every group of Christian people since the first century is man-centered religion. We find someone that we believe is superior in some way and we worship them at some level. May I say this, we are no longer looking for a Savior, we have one. We don't need a Savior of Christianity today. We don't need a Savior of the Bible today. We don't need a Savior of America today. We have a Savior if you're born again, so quit looking for one. Quit looking for the person that's the perfect Christian. You won't find one. Quit looking for the perfect marriage, for the perfect family. They don't exist. You have a perfect Savior, and everyone else that God uses in your life is just like you. That's what John's saying. He said, we have an experience you didn't have, but our experience does not separate us from you. It opens a door for us to minister to you. In Christianity, when you have more than other Christians, it's not so that you can elevate above them. It is so that you can help them be edified with you. Gifting in in God's economy is not about elitism. That's what happens in the world. You have more money than somebody else, that means you're better than them. But in God's economy, when you have an experience spiritually that others don't have, it is that you may use that to help bring them into the fellowship that you have with God. That's exactly what John is writing. He said, these people coming to you, uh, I believe that's what's insinuated here. Listen, we have handled the word of life. We touched him. We heard him. We saw him. We looked upon him. He was among us. He's talking about his experience. Christ's presentation. The word, in the, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And John says in John 1.14, We beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If John's laying all that down, in contrast to the people he's writing to, to my knowledge, none of these people had seen Jesus. None of these people had touched him. None of these people had hurt him. None of these people had handled him. So what does this experience do for John? Look at verse 2. This brings us into John's proclamation. He says, For the life was manifested. That's God was manifest in the flesh. All right? That's 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was Manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, and so on. It says verse 2, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it. He said, We have, what I just said in verse 1 is true. We have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you, notice the word show, that's light, revelation, show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. He said, Jesus Christ, who is eternal life, was with the Father, was manifested unto us, Those of us who have seen it are now showing it to you. You know what he's saying? We're not keeping you in the dark. We're bringing you into the light. You know what the preaching of the gospel does? It sheds light on a a world that's dark. A world that believes that odd things about sin are not in sin at all, has odd views of salvation and righteousness. The gospel is there to shed light. And so then, I believe this, by the way, when we refuse To preach the gospel, I believe often it's based in pride so that we can hold an elitist view. You know know what the primary fruits of Calvinism is? It shuts the gospel preaching up. You can track it, you can trail it, you can study it, but movements and conventions and associations and local churches that that embrace Calvinism may for a time continue to evangelize, but ultimately, if, if, if you believe that foul doctrine, you're going to have to stop preaching the gospel, because why would you? God's going to save who He's going to save, and you and I can't make a lick of difference, even though God told us in Jude we can. You can't, through compassion or fear, make a difference. Uh, Now, by the way, I'm sure some good Bible scholar could tell you why what Jude says is not what it means in verses 22 and 23. Because there's a superior knowledge there than what you read and the Spirit of God tells you in his book. My point is this. What happens is we get lifted up in pride, and it's in all of our nature, so we all need to take heed Lest we do that and seal up the knowledge. Look, this room is filled with the knowledge of God's Word tonight. Why? So we can be the best church in town? So we can say we're smarter than the next church down the road? We're the ones that are truly spiritual? We're the ones that are truly saved? Or did God give us light so we can give it to somebody else? God does not give light to elevate us. God gives us light to use us to disseminate that light. Ye are the light of the world. A light under a bushel, a light under a bed cannot shine. And that's what John's saying. He says, hey, we handled the word of life. We are witnesses that God gave us eternal life. We saw it manifest in flesh. And that's what we're telling you. We're not concealing this knowledge. We are giving this knowledge. We're revealing it. We show it unto you, that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Verse 3, he says... That which we have heard and declare, uh, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ, and these things write we unto you that your joy may be full." John's Proclamation, verse two, I'll give you three things about it. It was sincere. Acts 4:18 through20 said, "We do but speak." He and Peter said, "We do but speak the things which we have both seen and heard. John wasn't making stories up. John had literally sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper, had leaned over and said, which is, who is he that betrayeth thee? He was that close to God in the flesh. He had been there at the cross when Jesus was dying and the Lord had entrusted him with Mary, his mother. All of this is literal fact. John says in John 20, uh, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written that ye may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that believing you may have life through his name. He said, what I'm saying is, what... <laughs> he's not embellishing anything. He's not making up tales. He said, we've handled him, we've seen him, we've touched him, and we're just telling you what we've seen and heard. Acts four eighteen through 20 as I said, that's exactly what he and Peter, when told to stop preaching the gospel, they said... We are but speaking the things we've both seen and heard. You want, you want us to not tell what's true? May I say this? You know what true gospel preaching and witnessing is? It, is? it is telling what you know. Not telling what you hope is true. Not telling what you think might be true. It is telling what you know to be true because God said it. It's simple. Simple, sincere, and what John's doing here is sanctified because it's exactly what the Lord said to do. Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. You know what he's saying? We are simply passing on. We have some knowledge by experience that you don't have. And what I'm going to do here is pass on to you what I know to be true. I have an experience you don't have. As an apostle, all the apostles did. You know what that is? that not what the Bible is? A simple, sanctified, sincere work of God through humans to pass on what God told them to tell us. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Sincere, simple, and sanctified. Mark sixteen, fifteen through 20 same thing. As the apostles went out and preached the gospel, the Bible says the Lord working with them with signs and wonders confirmed their word. They went and preached what they had both seen and heard in the resurrected Christ and God gave signs and wonders to confirm their word. As they obeyed the Lord, the Lord worked with them confirming that what they preached was true. John's premise, he says Jesus Christ is the creator. He's from the beginning. He's the word of life that was manifest. We've seen him, touched him, handled him. He came in the flesh. He is exactly who we've already told you who he is. And because we've seen him, we declare him unto you. We're not concealing this knowledge. We're revealing this knowledge. Number three, John's purpose. He said, number one, We reveal this to you that you may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with God the Father, is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. Was John creating an exclusive club or through revelation of the the truth opening the door for others to enter into fellowship with God and with them? Was it? Let me ask you something. If one of our inmates that we work with were to believe the gospel, be gloriously born again, and get sincere about serving God, Would this church, through having preached the gospel to them, say, oh, you don't have enough knowledge and experience as we do. Would we keep them out or upon their confession of faith in Christ and obedience and baptism, would we bring them in? Yeah, that's the whole whole idea. Not bringing the world in, but bringing the gospel to the world that they might have fellowship with God. John says, we are not trying to keep you out, especially those who had already believed. So we have a fellowship through knowledge of Christ, and we are giving you the truth that you may also have that fellowship. We want you in partnership with God through Christ. And so then that was his purpose. And he's not writing to unbelievers, he's writing to believers. There were those that were coming to them, no doubt, saying, we have a wisdom and a knowledge you don't have. And you can't have, really, because you're not us. And they were not creating a fellowship, they were creating... A schism. They were, they were creating an elite club so where they could get a following and deceive people and take advantage of them. And John says, listen, as the apostles of Christ, that's not what we're doing. Our desire, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. You know what? Fellowship is agreement, it's partnership. You know what? I have fellowship with my wife. My wife is not my servant, she's my wife. There's a vast difference, is there not? We are in felt, meaning we, we are on equal terms in that way. have different roles, but we're on equal terms. We are in partnership and not some kind of a subservient role of, you know, you do this and this and this and I'm the king and you're the lowly slave. No, that's not fellowship. You know what John's saying? Though we're apostles, we want you have the same thing we do in Christ Jesus. And so then, uh, by the way, as Baptists, one of the reasons we are Baptists is because we believe in the priesthood of every believer. That's confirmed right here. John did not believe he had some unique access to God. He knew he had a unique experience, but that was to give others equal access. Make sense? Into the fellowship. That is in Christ Jesus. So that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So the first thing He desired was their fellowship. The second thing He desired was their fullness. He said, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Mesh something. If you've believed the Word of God, and someone comes along getting you to question whether or not it's actually the truth, and are you missing the real truth. We have the real truth. You be careful, people say that. If you're saved, you already got the real truth, and it can't be more real than that. We'll tell you that. We'll tell you the real. Let's. Let me tell you about the true Jesus. Let me tell you about true Christianity. Now, I know there are people that are false Christians. I get that. But Bible Christianity is all there is to it. That's it. There is no true Christianity. That's it. <laughs> Anything outside of that is false. And so John says, I am seeking your fullness. When you're sitting there constantly wondering, am I missing something by what I've believed? You know what the result is? Fear, distress, doubt, depression, all sorts of things. Not joy, I promise you that. You know where joy comes from? Faith. You trust the Lord, you have fullness of joy. The Lord Jesus had said very plainly in John 15, 11. Let's turn over there very quickly. John fifteen eleven. You remember what the Lord said in John chapter 10? The thief is not come but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Now, I say this. Satan comes along and he says, What you believe, oh, you're missing the real truth. What you're being taught, what you believe from the Bible, what you've you know, accepted as truth, Ah, there's there's more to it. There's more to it than the gospel. There's more to it than God created you. There's more to it than, than what you understand. Your worldview is so narrow. It is so limited. There's more light out there that you're not getting. Boy, in the heart of the believer, that'll sure mess you up and rob your joy. He comes to rob you of your joy. He can't rob you of your salvation if you're born again. but he can sure rob you of the fruit of the Spirit by casting down. John 15, verse 10, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. You know what John's saying? He said, We're not writing to you to rob you of anything. We are writing to you to solidify you and help you have fullness of joy. May I say this? One of the primary purposes for the book of 1 John for the Christian today is to help you have fullness of joy. How many of you have ever known a Christian who doubts their salvation that has fullness of joy? They only have joy in the days they're not doubting. And those aren't many. Because once Satan gets a foothold and gets you to question, some may say, well, I don't question the Word of God. I know God said, what God says is true. I'm just not sure if I have the Word of God. Well, then you question the Word of God. I don't question the Word of God, I question myself. May I say this? You never need to have confidence in yourself, not ever. But if you've trusted Christ, that's confidence in Him. You can rest in that. You'll find 1 John is about instilling confidence and assurance in God's people that they might have joy. May I say this tonight? The Spirit of God wants you confident in what Christ did for you the day He saved you. He wants you confident in his power to keep you. He wants you confident in his wisdom. He knows how your life should best be lived. He wants you confident in your, uh, uh, in, your, in your faith in him and resting in him. And that's where fullness of joy comes from. And so the false teachers, the accuser, the liar had come along through seducers. And certainly their goal was not the fullness of joy. God's goal for us is not only joy, that his joy might be in us, but that our joy might be full. And so then, as we move forward to 1 John, we'll know a lot of things are going to be said, but one of the primary reasons the book was written is that God's people not might gain salvation, these already saved people, but that they might have fullness of joy. Know this, when you start questioning the truth, it will rob you of your joy. When you start questioning the truth that God has already revealed to you. It's been said this, never question in the dark what God has revealed to you. Never question in the night what God has revealed to you in the day. God gave you light through his word and you saw there's truth and he persuaded you. Don't question that when Satan starts, when the clouds of life come over and God's not easy to see and you can't see what's going on. You just keep trusting in the truth and therein is our joy. Amen. And so. We've just kind of scratched the surface and started in this thing uh, tonight. God will we'll be coming back each week. I'm looking forward to 1 John. I think it is so pertinent to the time in which we live and to our time in this church right now. Amen. Mm-hmm.